Welcome to our second week in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be spending quite a while walking through this book together. Last week, we looked at the first chapter of the book, which serves as an introduction and sets up some of the core themes that we'll be seeing throughout our whole time in this book. It also helps introduce us to an overarching cycle that's incredibly important for understanding the story of God's people, especially in the Old Testament, but even beyond. So I'm going to remind us of the cycle now as something of a background for where we'll be headed. See, the cycle begins with God's dream to be partnered with people to bring life to the whole world. Now, the second phase of the cycle comes when people choose their own way, especially by falling into idolatry and injustice. The third phase comes when God sends prophets to warn the people that those practices and that going of their own way is not going to end well for them. Those warnings go unheeded, which leads to the fourth phase of consequence and destruction befalling the people. Out of that group that experiences consequence, there's a remnant who find that they return back to God and begin something new again in the last phase of the cycle, which is a process of restoration and being reestablished. And then those people grow and they partner with God for a while until they fall into injustice and they're warned that they shouldn't. And then they ignore the warnings and the consequences come and then a remnant comes out again. And round and round it goes. The cycle's really important and helpful because one thing we're going to see is how the book of Jeremiah doesn't neatly go in story order or chronological order. It doesn't really even go in thematic order. The book cycles around, it doubles back on itself, it repeats itself. But wherever you are in the book of Jeremiah, keeping that basic cycle in mind can help us be oriented to the overall flow of what's going on. And so today we're going to be working in those first and second parts of that cycle, looking at a metaphor that pops up right at the beginning of chapter two. If you've got a Bible or have a phone that has a Bible, now would be a good time to get that out because we're going to be looking at chapter two today and a little bit of chapter three. But this metaphor, it continues to pop up from time to time throughout the book of Jeremiah and really throughout the whole Bible, as we will see. The metaphor gives us a picture of the beauty that Yahweh had intended for God's relationship with people the first part of our cycle that Meredith was just mentioning. And it also gives us insight into just what exactly the problem was when people went their own way in the second part of our cycle. Jeremiah 2 starts, Yahweh's message came to me. Go, proclaim in Jerusalem's ears, Yahweh has said this, I've kept in mind for you the commitment of your youth, your love as a bride. You're following me through the wilderness, a country not sown, Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. All the people who ate of it would be guilty. Evil would come upon them. Yahweh's words. Now, comparing our relationship to God to a marriage might not seem that strange to you. It's in the New Testament. Like I said, it's all through the Bible. But ancient Israel is virtually unique in describing itself as the bride of God. There are legends of the gods coming down and getting a human woman pregnant who then gives birth to a powerful king or a hero or that sort of thing, but there just aren't other examples of a nation being described this way. This was strange, and when strange happens in the Bible, usually we should pay attention to it. As I said, this metaphor keeps popping up in other places. It's in other prophetic books, Isaiah 5. It's all the way through the book of Hosea. It's in the New Testament where the church is described as the bride of Christ. But in Jeremiah, what at first probably seems like a fairly positive metaphor to our ears takes a much darker turn. 
And this is where you cover the kids' ears because some of this is very much rated R. But jumping down to verse 20 of chapter 2, God says through Jeremiah, Because of old you broke your yoke, tore off your straps, and said, I won't serve. Because on every hill and under every green tree you're spreading your legs like a whore. And then jumping to chapter 3, If someone dismisses his wife, she goes from him and she comes to belong to another man, can he return to her again? Will that country not be totally defiled? And you, Jerusalem, have been whoring with many lovers. Would you return to me? Raise your eyes to the bare places and look, where have you not been laid? By the roads you sat for them like a Bedouin in the wilderness. You defiled the country with your whoredom and evil doing. Showers held back, there was no rain, but you had the brazenness of a whore. You refused to be shamed. Now we hear all of this with a certain filter, maybe, when it's God's voice saying those words. But imagine for a second that you take this language out of the context of the Bible and we just heard someone talking about their wife that way. We would be a little uncomfortable, especially when chapter 4 gets into the details of the consequences and death coming toward this unfaithful wife. To our ears, it gets uncomfortably close to being a message where God is represented almost as a domestic abuser. But this is the expansion of the marriage metaphor that Jeremiah introduces at the beginning of chapter 2. So what do we do with this and passages like it? It's an important question. You run into it again and again as we go through Jeremiah, and you run into it again and again if you read through the whole of Scripture. What do we do with passages that would have been received very differently to the original audience, but to our ears is, as the kids say, problematic? Because there are plenty of people who just skip over it, ignore it, reject it, make excuses for it. This is not a new problem. There's a story that I think is true that Thomas Jefferson just took scissors and cut passages out of his personal Bible that didn't fit with what he thought ought to be there. One of the early and most prominent heretics in the early church was a guy named Marcion, less than 100 years after Jesus's death, who basically argued that the whole Old Testament should just be cut out because he didn't like the picture of God he found there. This is a very old problem, is what I'm saying. But if we say that the whole Bible is the word of God, revealed by God through human authors, that this Bible is true and trustworthy to tell us about who God is, then we need a better way of dealing with difficult passages. So we want to spend a couple minutes on this today. It's going to feel a little more practical, nuts and bolts, than maybe you might be used to in a sermon. But hopefully going through this process that we're about to describe will help us all land in a spot that is really applicable and important for us today. So first, we'll say this. This metaphor is exactly that, a metaphor. And while metaphors are useful in communicating true things, they all have limits. So when Yahweh compares God's relationship to Israel as being like one between a husband and wife— That doesn't mean everything that's true about a husband-wife relationship is also true about the God-Israel relationship. That's not the point Jeremiah is trying to make. Some things are the same, but others aren't. It's a metaphor. And you can kind of see this playing out in chapter 2 itself, as Israel gets compared to a wife, and then a grape harvest, and then plunder. 
and then an ox, then a whore, then a seed, then a camel, then a donkey, then a runner who's worn out their shoes, then a girl, and then a bride again. It's like no one metaphor actually captures the situation sufficiently, and so they end up piling a bunch of metaphors on top of one another. Point being, we don't want to ascribe to this passage or ascribe to God things that aren't actually there to begin with. We need to understand the meaning and also the limits of the metaphor. So that's one thing that's important to keep in mind. But even so, how do we read passages like this well? And it's a two-step process. First, we try our best to understand what the passage, in this case, the metaphor that's being used, what that would mean within the cultural context. Then second, we think about what it might mean to us today. The first part is what might make us uncomfortable. Marriage meant something very different in Jeremiah's day than it does in ours. There's overlap, of course, but there's also distance. Some really good distance between our understanding of marriage and Jeremiah's. Things that have changed very much for the better, especially if you're a woman. But we need to start there and in that context. What would the original, let's face it, male hearers of this marriage metaphor, what would they have heard? First, they would have been disoriented right off the bat. In that highly patriarchal society, men being told they are like women might not have gone over well at first. In fact, that's part of the point. The whole point of a prophet is to shock complacent people into listening and responding to the serious problems that up until now they have been ignoring, to grab them by the shoulders and shake them out of their complacency. Men of Israel, wake up. You're like women, like unfaithful women. You're like animals. You're like whores. Don't like being described that way? Then change your ways. So that's the first point of this metaphor, to shock, to grab their attention. But there's more to it than that. Marriage, and this is as true today as it was then, brings to mind, among other things, two important concepts, covenant and exclusivity. The relationship between God and Israel is different from other relationships because each side has made promises to one another and are expected to keep those promises. And those promises are unique to the other person. They are exclusive. The whole thing falls apart if I go outside of the relationship to find the things that I have promised will only be a part of this relationship. These things would have been central to Jeremiah's message and why this metaphor is used out of all the metaphors that could be used and were used. God and Israel made promises to one another, one of which was that Israel was God's special people, that God would protect them and be present with them in a unique way. And then in return, Israel would treat Yahweh with exclusivity. Yahweh is the one God, and they wouldn't worship other gods. You can see there where the metaphor breaks down. A person is not meant to worship their spouse, but Israel does worship God. The metaphor is meant to call attention to the idea of promises being made, a covenant being made. It's not meant to represent what specifically those promises are. And so when Israel breaks those promises, Jeremiah compares them to a sexually unfaithful wife, even though the promises Israel broke aren't sexual in nature. Again, it is the breaking of promises that is similar here, not what those broken promises are. Okay, so covenant or promises, 
and then uniqueness or exclusivity. Those are two of the main ideas this metaphor is meant to communicate. But now let's look at some more ideas that resonate here that this metaphor would have brought to mind, but that were more specific to that cultural context than to ours. What was, in other words, a marriage relationship for in ancient Israel? Well, from the husband's side, there was a commitment to protection and provision. And you can see this is in view by how the first passage we read talks about the marriage. So in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Yahweh has said this, What wrongdoing did your ancestors find in me? That they went far away from me, went after emptiness, and became emptiness. But didn't say, where is Yahweh, the one who brought us up from the country of Egypt and enabled us to go through the wilderness, through a country of step and pit, a country of drought and deep darkness, a country through which no one passed and where no human being lived. I enabled you to come into a country of farmland to eat its fruit and its good things. In other words, God is saying, I protected you. From Egypt and through the wilderness, I provided for you on the dangerous journey and provided you this prosperous home to live in. If I were a husband, I would have fulfilled my obligations. I provided, I protected. So why did you leave me? These aren't the first things many of us would associate with marriage today, provision and protection, but they would have been the first things for Jeremiah's listeners. And they can inform today the promises God still makes to us. We also can trust God to provide for us and protect us, just like God has promised. We might use different metaphors to describe it today, but it's just important for us to hear those true things, and they are just as true now as they were then. Now, on the other side, in ancient Israel, what were the promises a woman made entering into marriage? Well, for one, again, exclusivity that she would not go to anyone else for protection or provision. And two, that she would bear her husband, his children. The ancient world didn't really have much of an idea of an afterlife. And what ideas there were would have been very different than how we think of it now. For the most part, then, when you died, you were dead. End of story. Unless you had descendants to carry on your DNA which of course they would not have called DNA. But if you had descendants, then you weren't really gone, which is why men were really concerned with ensuring that their children were in fact theirs. The deal was, I, husband, will protect and provide for you, and you, wife, will give me my children to continue my legacy into the future. In that sort of worldview, an unfaithful woman ruins not just my life, but my afterlife, which is why you see such severe punishments for unfaithfulness in the ancient world. And you can see this expectation in Jeremiah's use of the metaphor. If you look again at chapter 2, verse 3, Israel is described as a bride, and then it says, Israel was holy, set apart that is, to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest. Now, it seems like a jump in metaphor. Israel's a bride set apart But now Israel is a crop, the first part of a harvest. But there's actually a connection there. Israel being the first fruits to ripen, it also is meant to remind us of the means by which more fruit comes later. We've talked before about how God chose Israel so that the whole world would be blessed. 
Israel was going to be the means by which the family of God grows until it includes everybody and the entire world comes to know God through them, which is kind of like how a wife was expected to be the means by which a husband's family grows. Now, would we use a different metaphor to get at that idea today? Probably. But we can understand what's being said here. You, Israel, as my wife, God would say, you're supposed to be helping my family grow and expand. But instead, you're breaking our exclusivity and going off to worship other gods. You've made it impossible for any of this to happen at all. You've betrayed your purpose as my special and holy people. The marriage metaphor helps get at that idea in a way that other metaphors would not have for those people in that time. So what we hope in all that is that we could see some of the value of taking seriously the original context of a challenging passage, trying to understand what it might have meant then, even if it's uncomfortable, because in doing so, it allows us to hear certain true things, even if they're hidden under a couple layers of cultural difference. And then... And this is something we would want to do while seriously listening to the Holy Spirit. Once we understand what the passage meant in the original context, we can ask whether God might be saying something to our context through that passage that just wouldn't have been in the minds of the original audience at all. Stuff they would have missed, but that God maybe intended all the same. Jesus and Paul in the New Testament do this all the time, where there's a passage in the Old Testament that meant one thing, and they say, well, here's what this passage means. And if you look it up in the Old Testament, it's not even in the same ballpark as what the original actually said. Sometimes you read how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and it's like, is that allowed to read scripture that way? But apparently it is. <laughs> and often the reason why they are interpreting an old passage in a new way is first that they are intimately connected to the Holy Spirit. They're listening to what new things the Holy Spirit might be saying. And second, they are seeing how other passages of Scripture can shed light on this passage to help us see new things we wouldn't see otherwise. In this case, what can we hear from this marriage metaphor? What does it mean to us that we, God's people, are like God's bride? For one thing, Marriage is seen more today as an equal partnership rather than a hierarchical relationship. Now, we humans are not actually equal to God. The metaphor breaks down again. But it is the case that in other places in Scripture, we see that God has given us the status of partners in the work God is doing, that God gives us power and responsibility and trusts us to be God's representatives on earth. Just like in a marriage today, both spouses can legally represent one another in various ways. And of course, this sheds light on why Israel's and our own idolatry are such a big deal. God has treated us as God's partners and given us authority to work on God's behalf in the world. And Israel had abandoned that responsibility. God's plans cannot go forward without God's partners. Not because God can't do it any other way, but because God chooses to work through and alongside humanity. But even more than that, I think there's one other thing that this metaphor wants to say to us today about our relationship with God and why it's such a big deal when people leave God to go their own way. Now, this thing is something that we probably most associate with marriage today. 
but it probably wouldn't have been in the top five things associated with marriage in Jeremiah's day. And that is a marriage means intimacy, emotional closeness, vulnerability to one another. And unfaithfulness means a break in intimacy, a betrayal of vulnerability. God, just like a good spouse, makes God's self vulnerable by entering a relationship with us. And when we betray that trust, when we abandon our promises, it hurts God in a way that is, if not exactly the same as when a person cheats on their spouse, is similar enough in some fundamental ways to be worthy of the metaphor. In fact, we will see this later on in Jeremiah, the emotional anguish that Israel's unfaithfulness causes God. Now, does this interpretation align with scripture? Yes, The New Testament talks about us being united with Christ, much like in a marriage, two become one flesh. In the Old Testament, Song of Solomon is, in one light, a collection of erotic poetry that got stuck in the Bible for the endless amusement of generations of junior hires. But for thousands of years, God's people have been interpreting that book to be an allegory for God's relationship to God's people, of God's deep, passionate desire to intimately relate to humanity. Depending on how we picture God, this can feel odd, almost sacrilegious to talk about God's intimate desire for us using sexual metaphors, but it's there all through the Bible. And it challenges us when it makes us uncomfortable to interrogate that feeling. Why are we so resistant to the idea of experiencing God intimately? Do we picture God as a distant grandfatherly figure? Do we picture God as primarily angry with us? Do we picture God as aloof and uncaring? Jeremiah is using the metaphor of a marriage primarily to highlight the seriousness of Israel's offense against their God. But might we also hear an invitation? An invitation not just to turn from sin and return to some legal covenant or business arrangement that Yahweh's made with God's people, but to return to what God always actually wanted. Intimate, loving, vulnerable relationship. Unity with us, just like the unity between spouses. God's people have been experiencing that unity, that intimacy throughout history. It has been what sustains them through dark times and what brings them joy in the midst of suffering, it is in some ways what we were made for. And so that's where we're going to close today. We'll have more discussion about some of the challenges and background of this passage on the Backdrop podcast, so tune into that if you're interested. But for today, for now, we want to practice experiencing the intimate presence of our God. If you have a few moments before you go on with your day, We'd encourage you to spend them enjoying the presence of God. We know that we're experiencing these safer at home orders in different ways. But for some of us, one way this impacts us is there's not a lot of time to be quiet or still with God. Maybe because our house is noisy. That'd be my situation. Maybe because our worries are noisy. And of course, for others, that isn't your version of things. And that's just fine. But it is always worth our time to stop and do nothing more than be in the presence of God. We might forget or doubt that God really loves to be near. Intimacy can be blocked by shame, pain, doubt, fear. But when we come to God, God always responds 
with delight. A sense of, oh, it's you. What could be better than spending time with you? So I'm going to read just a few other passages from Scripture, and we'll close today. And hopefully before you go on, you'll be able to take in the moment of a God who delights in you and wants to experience intimacy with you. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Psalm 139. 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Zephaniah 3, 17. For the Lord your God is living among you. God is a mighty Savior. God will take delight in you with gladness, with God's love, God will calm all your fears. God will rejoice over you with joyful songs. May our God, who protects and provides, who is exclusively committed to you, who wants to be with you in an intimate way, reveal themselves to you in these moments and in the days ahead. Amen.